Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance. Uh, today we'll be talking about Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, 1770 to 1831, who's a German philosopher of the 18th century with some fairly mind-blowing ideas. I, was, I would say that he's, like all good philosopher, he's crossed the line between madness and genius, but is still sane enough to write down his ideas, but only just. Okay, I have with me Caterina Del- Deli Giorgi from the University of Sussex and Peter Benson, a frequent contributor to Philosophy Now magazine, particularly on Hegel. Uh, Rosanella and Alan will be providing live music. So, first question, guys Who is Hegel and why is he relevant or important? Uh, Peter, do you want to start us off with who Hegel was? Yeah, well, as Grant said, Hegel was born in 1770. Now, to put that in context, that's the same year that William Wordsworth was born. Okay. Um, so both of them were 19 at the time of the French Revolution. Yeah, that's significant um, for Both Hegel, of them isn't it? reacted very enthusiastically to this, as so many people did mm-hmm. around Europe. Um, Wordsworth, of course, said that it was um, a bliss it was in that dawn to be alive and right. to be young was very heaven. And both of them were young and uh, excited by this. Uh, as time went on, of course, the, the revolution turned into the terror, this uh, appalling um, uh, period of uh, destruction and, and death. And Hegel was very uh, upset by this and very aware of this change and the subsequent change when um, the uh, new government that had been set up in France was um, uh, replaced by the dictatorship of Napoleon. Okay. And I think seeing that as the historical background gives some idea of his sense of history and the importance of history and historical change. Because he was a philosopher of history. He was a philosopher of history. In terms of uh, the history of philosophy, the major influence at the time that Hegel was growing up was Kant. And this said that Kant had produced an enormous philosophical system which had fascinated people. At the same time, of course, everybody came along afterwards felt in rivalry with this, that they wanted to go beyond Kant. But there was uh, an assumption that what a philosopher would do would be to produce a system. Now, the various people who came along, Hegel was the one who perhaps produced the most extravagant of systems. Mm, yeah, it was a complete um, which was, uh, cathedral to, to himself. A cathedral, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, an enormous construction. And um, uh, this was to answer, to re- replace Kant's system and to go beyond Kant's system and to resolve some of the problems that they were, he considered, within Kant's system. Okay, okay. Katerina, why is he relevant to, well, to us I, listening? I was thinking about uh, this idea and, and, uh, of relevance and three contradictory views came to mind and the systematicity of Hegel, if we have a chance to develop a little bit further, perhaps accounts for why contradictory ideas can claim uh, Hegelian ancestry. Well, the first one is the kind of conservatism that uh, was rather unhappily uh, named uh, the big society. So uh, you're saying basically that Hegel is is the... uh, Let me stop. He's the beginning of a lot of historical ideas such as the big society that's well what you're let me explain a bit uh, I'm saying that there is a localism and the conservatism an idea of being at home in the world yeah. of belonging of cohesion uh, the, the Hegelian term uh, is ethical community or Zitlichkeit and there is an English philosopher Michael Oakshot who 
can't be thought of as sort of middle point, let's say, between Hegel and, and big society. And against this, mm-hmm. another thought that people may associate with Hegel is Francis Fukuyama's notorious end of history. Okay. And that was much derided because of its rashness and um, triumphalism. But against That's Fukuyama's book you're talking th- about. That is Fukuyama's a notion of end of history, but it is not fanciful to see an ancestry uh, of that idea in Hegel and the core thought there would be that once something like a political arrangement in which we have universal rights and respect for individuals is on the card it's very difficult to go back unless you start retrenching and delimiting the scope for uh, freedom Uh, and the third idea yet to alienate (laughs) the parts of the audience that are not already alienated is of course Marxism because there is a a very, there are important continuities, not just Marx is not just a critic of Hegel, there are important continuities in, in, in their thought. And one uh, uh, idea I want to get across is the thought of contradiction. Uh-huh. Uh, for uh, Marx as well as for Hegel, contradiction is just a, just a logical misdeed. Uh, There is something that people can experience and something that struck me listening to the radio today about the capping of uh, um, the proposal for uh, capping benefits in order for people to get out of work is a contradiction that lots of people might experience. On the one hand, they say, okay, if there are no jobs, get on your bike, mobility, you should embrace mobility, you should go out and do things. On the other hand, uh, we have duties to uh, our families, our children, our immediate society, and therefore stability is our duty. And this is a contradiction faced by the people. So the contradiction is between what movement and stability uh, or other contradictions that you can experience but uh, this is just an example from today's news but what both Marx and Hegel uh, saw was that contradictions do not just a logical problem it's something that people can experience in, in their daily lives and what they sought in different ways in their philosophies to find a way to overcome contradiction okay um, well that's, so, a, that's quite yeah. a lot I don't think we'll be able to cover all of that but um I think we're going to start with the... If I can take up the the, uh, question about Marx as well and what Marx took from Hegel. Marx actually says somewhere that uh, his entire philosophy is just an elaboration of about ten pages in The Philosophy of Right. Which is Hegel's book of of, uh, jurisprudence. Well, uh, moral and And political philosophy. Um, And the section that uh, uh, Marx took up is the section on civil society and about the uh, dialectic, the conflict between capital and labour. And this was elaborated, as we know, as the, the basis of Marx. His philosophy. Now, in Hegel, um, the, he takes exactly that same uh, position that there's this conflict between the um, wishes of labour and the wishes of capital. Mm. But he comes to the conclusion that the um, this is a conflict that can't be resolved at that level. That mm-hmm. a different level has to come in, and that level is the level of the state. Yeah. So that the only way for this to be resolved is for decisions to be made at the level of the state, um, which will produce harmony between these conflicting forces. This, of course, yeah. is what Marx rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we look at the world today, we can see how Hegel's comments on this are, are relevant to the problems that we face. Is that, does that uh, t- 
tie in with what you were saying about uh, Hegel's influence? Absolutely. Uh, but what I find an interesting question is not just the solutions one might try to find in Hegel, but why there's, you know, from on the one hand, uh, conservatism and localism and communitarism, on the other hand, aggressive neoliberalism, and then Marxism can all find... Yeah. Somehow they're home in Hegel, and I think this is uh, well. They all claim their roots in Hegel, don't, don't they? But, but how come? You know, the contradictory positions. Because yeah, sure. you could say either the guy is just super so intelligent. How, so, so, uh, so let's stop there. So how come? How come all these people, the the conservatives, the neoliberals, and the communists? How do they all say, "Oh, we trace our thinking back to Hegel"? How is that possible? They may not all say it. So I didn't want to get across the idea that they all actually say it, but that it can reason reasonably and plausibly be traced, yes. Well, I think, basically, there are two issues. One is that Hegel is a systematic thinker, as was said at the start, and it's very easy for people to have cafeteria-style Hegel and pick the bits they like. But the other issue is that Hegel is a complex thinker, and that's different to say that that he's saying that he's obscure, which he also is, of course, notoriously. But he's a complicated thinker. He tries to get across, and maybe he fails, uh, a a, a complex idea. Okay, what is the complex... What is the heart of his thinking, then? Does anybody want to just go straight to the heart of what he thinks? I can have a go. Yeah, go on, then. Okay. Uh, It's something that sounds very simple and Uh slogan-like, but it is enormously complicated Uh, to unpack. Start with the slogan, let's... Okay, the slogan is, philosophy is its own time comprehended or taken up in thought. Now, that's simple, and can be a very trivial thought that we are all children of our time, and we attend to things that are present to hand. But then, what does it mean for this historical moment to be reconciled or thought together with the idea of things being taken up in thought, comprehended. This idea of a realm that is outside time. Okay. And there is one way that some people understand Hegel taken up means understanding these contradictions and showing them, and therefore the philosopher is critical. He shows up, you know, what is the the matter that is uh, what is the the problems of society like a Socratic gut fly and there is another view more quietistic view that sees Hegel as being uh, as the philosopher who says look the world is alright there is nothing the matter with the world what is the matter is your own misprisions the fantasies you have about fulfilment and the like okay uh, Peter what about you what would you say is the sort of core of Hegel um, well, I think to, to carry on from the, those positions about uh, history, this is also one of the differences uh, with Marx, that this comprehension of time um, takes place uh, in relation to the past. There's no prediction of what's going to happen in the future in right. Hegel. Uh, it's only when we look backwards that we can understand what it is that has brought us to this position. Okay. Um, this is why the but what is the position that we've been brought to? Uh, the position that we're in now, which, yes. which is what yeah, we can no, call what is, what is the it end of history. It's um, the end of history, which well, is... Ah, but, but, uh, but the point is, it's not, it's not an end where nothing else happens. Yes. But uh, we were always at the end of history, because history has brought us to it's this position. It's not going to evolve anymore. No, 
no, yeah. it doesn't say that at all. No, that's what subsequent people yeah. have said. You see, Francis Fukuyama um, took his ideas mainly from uh, Alexander Kojave, yeah. um, who uh, gave a series of lectures about Hegel in the 1930s in I, Paris. I probably got them wrong. Which was hugely influential on French philosophy at the time, particularly yeah. because there was no translations of Hegel available at the time. Right. Um, and this is very, it's an eccentric interpretation of Hegel. It's an interesting interpretation, um, but it is an eccentric interpretation. If you look at Hegel himself, he, uh, there's no notion of history having come to an end or uh, right. in, in any way uh, imminently going to come okay. to an end. So uh, he says, what about history then? He says that uh, in looking backwards, we can see this pattern of history. And when we do see that, there's a famous quotation that uh, when philosophy paints its grey on grey, then has a, t- a form of life grown old, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only at dusk. Uh, now, yeah, I don't know what that means, but anyway. What, what it means is that, that philosophy comes after the events have happened. Right, okay. uh, history evolves without people thinking very much about sight, what's happening. Yeah. And then the philosopher comes along with an ability to understand it. Okay, I think we're going to go to a song song now uh, but uh, after the song we'll be t- talking about what Hegel's theory of history is yeah so Alan you're going to lead us into a song what's this song going to be called it's, well I, I don't really I think actually in view of the fact that we're talking about time related things or things relating to time we'll do a song called Time Waits for No One okay Except me while I'm tuning up. Yeah, we're all waiting for you now. Yeah, well, still love you. Anyway, here we go. Don't wait for your hair Time's got no patience It really don't care You're pushing it till it's all work It's no play You know it's gonna take some time Just remember Time's the bottom line Every minute, every day, the time's gonna make you pay. And a moment in a week, you ain't got time to speak. And a moment in a week, you ain't got time to speak. Cause time waits for no one, baby blue. Time waits for no one, baby blue Like a hurricane blowing Time's after you Don't wait for the sun And don't wait for the rain Time's got no patience It's here to bring you pain 
And if you're thinking of taking a moment Just to try and work things out Just remember Time's got the cloud So sail down the river Let your feelings flow Sail down the river Let it go Just love every moment Feel every thrill Cause time is ticking It won't stay still Time waits for no one, baby blue Like a sprinter on a racetrack Time's time in you From the starter's gun To the final straight Time's moving you on You can't be late Every minute Every day, the time's gonna make you pay. At a moment in the week, you ain't got time to speak. At an hour in the month, you're gonna feel the crunch, cause time waits for no one, baby blue. Time waits for no one. Baby Blue Thanks Alan We'll give details of his website later For people who like that song Um, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine We're uh, The Philosophy Now radio show We're talking about Hegel And uh, a German philosopher of history From the 18th century I have with me Katerina Deli Georgi And uh, Peter Benson And I I just want to straight away get into What some of Hegel's ideas are Particularly uh, starting with his uh, Idea of history Um what what to he- what is Hegel's idea of the meaning of history, or what is the aim or or purpose of history to to Hegel, and therefore the meaning of life? Just to start us off. Oh, that's the purpose. Big. Of, the purpose okay. of history to uh, Hegel. I think Hegel is a philosopher of whom we can't ask what's the purpose of history. Yeah. is, actually, and although Peter uh, very nicely. Uh, presented earlier the retrospective character of philosophical understanding, I do think that Hegel is committed to progress in history. Sure. Uh, The difficulty is how we capture that progress. Sure. And there are some people who think that uh, Hegel is committed to some sort of uh, supra-individual entity, something like spirit, uh, trudging through uh, history, realising itself. He does use the word spirit, doesn't he? He does, indeed. But spirit is another of these mysterious words that requires quite a lot of interpretation because it could be just us here now speaking and trying to understand our problems, our life, our relation to society, our relation to our hopes and Uh, actions, etc. Can we we sort of... uh, skip the problems and just get to the yeah. ideas. Okay. The, uh, one 
easy way of capturing uh, Hegel's progressive view of history is uh, in another slogan that he himself gives you when he looks at uh, empires, uh, ancient empires, he says, then one was free, yeah. then he looks at the Athenian uh, city-state, then he says, few are free, right. and he believes that in the modern world, all are free or potentially free. So it's a develop- history is a development of freedom. I, I've got a quote here from he, he says in the Phenomenology of Spirit, the, the history of the world is none other than the progress of the consciousness of freedom. What's your response to that, Peter? Um, I think one of the important things in, in what uh, Katarina's just said is that uh, progression from uh, a world in which only one person is free to a world in which some people are free to a world in which uh, all people are free. That's how you um, perceived it. But That's yeah. how you perceived it. But the interesting thing there, of course, is there's three stages. And, yeah. and this is one of the, the central things about Hegel, that everything proceeds in three stages. Sure. This is what's called the dialectic. Right. And it's one of the things that people have probably heard about in relation to okay. Hegel. Um, it's often misunderstood um, because it's frequently described in terms of a process of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Right. Uh, these are words that Hegel himself never used. Oh, didn't he? Um, these, are, yeah. these are terms that were introduced by one of his followers later, and okay. people thought, ah, oh, I can understand that, so they latched onto that uh, and didn't bother trying to understand further. Um, to try and give a better idea, I'm going to uh, pinch some ideas from uh, Slavoj Žižek, who's a oh, contemporary right. Hegelian right. philosopher, who gave Žižek. a very good example of what the dialectic is, and he did it by taking um, a quotation from a film, which is Christopher Nolan's film, The Prestige, okay. from 2006, which is, uh, many people have probably seen. It's a film about a rival between two magi- magicians. No, no, um, no you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the... Um Assistant to one of the magicians, played by Michael Kay, right. and he has a theory of what magic is. Right. And um, uh, Michael Kay gives this uh, speech of what the, every magic trick contains three stages. Right. I'm not going to do the voice, I'm not going to do my impersonation right. of Michael Kay. What he says is this every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. A magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it to see that it is indeed real, unaltered, normal. But of course it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret. You won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you won't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. This is... um, Hegelian philosophy in in a nutshell: the right. pledge, the turn, and the prestige. Okay, the three steps his, of the dialectic. That's it, how he thinks uh, things progress through these three stages. Yeah? What happens in in the film is that uh, a small bird is made to disappear. The bird disappearing is the turn, right. and then it's made to reappear, which is the prestige. Right. But the process of making the bird disappear is in fact killing the bird. Although the, the audience don't see that, the bird has been killed in the process of making it disappear, and what reappears is, is another dis- bird. So what happens afterwards, what happens with the prestige, doesn't bring back the dead bird. History doesn't uh, resolve the past, it takes it to a different stage. Okay, look, uh, so we've got this idea that uh, that this Hegelian logic works in a certain way and it's worked on history to to start off with one person, the tyrant, being free and then some people being free in sort of, say, Athenian democracy and then in Hegel's time, because he thought he was at the accumulation of history, that everybody is free. Um, Hmm. Can I come in? Yeah, sure. Because we 
I don't want Hegel to come across as only a sort of having this Polyanish view of history. Right. It's all jolly good fun towards, you know. Uh, there is a Whiggish interpretation of Hegel. On the mm. other hand, he does, he is quite uh, unsparing about the degree of atrocity we can inflict on one, on one another. And he calls uh, somewhere, he, he calls history the slaughter bench of history. So he's not dewy-eyed, nor does he think there is some sort of uh, Leibnizian harmonious universe or theodicy where everything gets redeemed in, in, in the end. Sure, um, but he, the, bird, the original bird is dead and it's only another bird that can come yes, along Yes, but this. that's why I'm... <laughs> that's why I think uh, perhaps the Zizek thing is more about Zizek than about oh, Hegel. Everything is Zizek is about Zizek. But, yeah. um, I mean, the, the point is, he's, he's saying that history is a progress towards freedom, right? I mean, is that historically accurate for a start? And mm. if it is, what is this freedom which we're supposed to be progressing towards? What is it? Well, the way I see it is there is a certain conception of freedom as yeah. a right that emerges historically at a certain time uh, and, uh, and a certain place in history. But it's, let's what say, is, the what? European Enlightenment, the idea right. that we are free, that we should be self-determining, that should, we should not just cleave to tradition and what is given uh-huh. and what is accepted. That's so, what came out through the French Revolution, Let's right? say, yes. The Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And then there is a philosophical conceptualization of this through different people, but key for Hegel is Kant, right? Right. But I don't think, I don't think Hegel's view is that view of history but exa- of freedom. But exactly. He thinks that this kind of freedom, uh, whilst very valuable, at the same time separates us out of lots of valuable and important resources. Uh, okay, so we're talking about support, the... F- he's, n- he's not just into freedom as self-determination exactly. or, and autonomy. Exactly. He calls autonomy. this arbitrariness. He okay. calls this arbitrariness. Uh, in in the philosophy of right, the term he uses, which can be translated as free choice, is usually translated in uh, the Hegelian context as arbitrariness, because mm-hmm. it is the thought, oh, I can do whatever I like. And this, he considers a very destructive view of freedom. And the problem is how you can reconcile what is emancipatory and exciting about this idea of freedom with all sorts of other things we need such as fulfillment for instance in our daily lives and uh, um, social structures uh, which we can uh, in which we can recognize ourselves we don't just have a negative relation towards them and this is the more the potentially conservative uh, side of, of Hegel where okay. he thinks that freedom should be understood more like a fit between so the subject and the object the the chimeric or the chameleon-like nature of Hegel's thing possibly boils down to there's lots of different ways you can read what he's saying about yes. what freedom is. I mean, yes. he does bring the state in there. I mean, do you want to say anything about uh, Hegel's view of freedom in relation to history, Peter? Um, as you say, I think there's, the state is... Uh, it's only within the state that freedom can be achieved. Why does Hegel? he think that, though? Um, because precisely of these uh, conflicts that uh, exist be- in, within civil society, that is to say society at a level below the state, yeah. uh, which can only be uh, solved or uh, mediated uh, by a higher level, which is the, the level of the state. Um, so, so you need some higher authority to tell you what to do and then you can be free. 
Uh, it's not a question of telling you what to do. It's a question of mediating between the various conflicting right, parties. Okay. Right, okay. Um, okay, so what... Um, what was... Uh, why did Tegel think that the state in his contemporary Prussia was the end point of history? Well, it is questionable whether he in fact thought that. I think Peter uh, explained really well that uh, when he Hegel speaks about end of history uh, should be understood either in terms of wherever each philosopher stands looking back uh, so there isn't any end of history or really. you can understand it or you can understand the way I try to present as a progressive realization or conceptualization of freedom so okay. whichever way you understand okay, it you put, cannot have <laughs> the Prussian state did, as the people why did he think that the state his state in his time was the sort of the manifestation of free or the vehicle of freedom which couldn't get any better than then you know you couldn't evolve the state beyond that point why did he think that? I don't think he did think that. Um, okay. I, I don't, as as uh, Katrina was saying, I think um, he doesn't suggest that history has come to an end. Um, interestingly enough, there was an American academic who wrote a, a sequel to The Phenomenology of Spirit uh -huh. um, called The Owl at Dawn, in which he carried on <laughs> talking about subsequent historical events since oh. the death of Hegel okay. and saw those also evolving in the same dialectical process. And there's no reason why that should be contradictory with, uh, with what Hegel said. There is an element of acceptance and of encouraging us to accept or at least take seriously, give their due weight to the institutions and the structures that surround us. Right. And this is what can push what I um, described earlier as the more quietistic life, where you leave the world as it is. Uh, yeah. And what you try to reconfigure is your hopes, your ideas, your intentions about uh, uh, fulfillment, etc. And this is why, for example, the phenomenology, uh, one of his most famous and better read books, I think, don't you think, is so popular uh, because it is full of characters uh, shapes of consciousness, but they're really like characters called uh, unhappy consciousness or master-slave, uh -huh. dialectic. And it's all about this struggle. Uh, one shape has an idea or a hope or an aspiration or a belief, and then it turns out that it just does not fit with what they are capable of achieving or what they, in fact, hold in their hand. And this is how what gets the dialectic going in, in the book. Uh, so... Yeah. Well, it's a page turn. Yeah, I mean, the, well, I don't think it's a page turn. <laughs> well, I wouldn't recommend anybody to try uh, reading yeah. it. It is, it is extraordinarily dense. Uh, it is, as Katrina says, one of the most uh, widely read of his books. But in fact, it was intended as an introduction yeah. to his system. Okay. Not an introduction in the sense of being That's simplification. the phenomenology of spirit. The phenomenology of spirit. It was uh, starting, as it, it does start, with just ordinary everyday uh, perceptions, ordinary everyday life. And then seeing how developing the contradictions within that, seeing how trying to get a clearer and clearer position on this leads one further and further on until at the end of the book you arrive at what he calls absolute knowledge which will sound like a, an extraordinary thing to be okay. offered okay um, okay we're, we're gonna talk about absolute knowledge and all that business after the <laughs> next song and now we've got rosanella to play what's the name of your song rosanella it's called look look at them there look at them there look at them there and uh, it's what i call my bass song i've okay. wrote it, thought i was 
on the 74 bus on that day, not feeling in very good mood. Okay. Because, um, well, you know, I'd listen to the radio and then watch the TV. At that time, I still watched the TV and there was bad news all over the place. And then as I was sitting down, I see a poster that says, Smile, you're on camera. So between politics and smiley faces, this song came, came about. Look at them there, they're coming and going with the money. Yeah. Look at them there, it's been scary, now there is getting worse and nobody cares. Something is gonna kill, I wonder what that will be. Something is gonna kill, I wonder what that will be. Will the new monarchs be coming in a new religion with these crusaders here? The anarchists can't help, they haven't got a clue, they don't know what to do. The generations that fail, the freedom deep I caught in the weapon rules. Someone must be watching this, putting a master plan. Someone must be watching this, putting the master plan. And we are weaved into history. 
Okay, I'm Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now Radio Show. We're talking about Hegel. We, I've got here Katerina Deli Georgia, Georgie, and Peter Benson. Uh, just okay. Coming back to what you were saying before the the, the song there, uh, Hegel's got this idea that uh, hu- human history is evolving to a state of absolute knowledge. Do you want to say something about what this ab- state of absolute knowledge is? Well, the, the final chapter of the Phenomenology of Spirit is called Absolute Knowledge. Right. Um, it's very short, <coughs> and in fact doesn't contain a great deal um, that's particularly illuminating. Anybody who just t- turned to that chapter thinking that they could skip the preliminaries uh-huh. uh, wouldn't get a great deal from it. Um, what he doesn't mean is that you then know everything. He doesn't mean that you could then go on Mastermind and answer questions and everything okay. at all. What he means is that there's a position from which you can now understand um, the whole of everything. Um, and uh, the Phenomenology of Spirit is a slow progression towards that position, the Calvary of the Spirit, as he calls okay, it. So, so at the end of this Calvary of the Spirit, you've arrived at the top of the mountain, and now you can turn around and re-describe it from that position, which is what he does in his later work, which is the system itself, described from the highest point. Oh, okay. can I take off from here? Because yeah. that's very uh, helpful, even though, having written my PhD on the Absolute, I was... Very keen, I remember. Sorry, the absolute being what? <laughs> well, exactly, that's the question, whether it is a thing but or how whether does he it is use, a way what does he mean things. by the word, right? Well, the best thing is to take it over from where exactly Peter left us, at the threshold of the logic, the science of logic, or, as Hegel said, the thoughts of God before creation, which sounds hugely arrogant, because... Right. So, uh, why, sorry, why is he talking about the thoughts of God before creation? Precisely, where does that exactly, come in? why? Where does that come in? Uh, that's what he thinks logic is. 
it's that's how he does it's notion because of logic. It's his, his, his idea is, it's, it's a basic metaphysics, and it's an attempt to give an account of what there is, all the basic stuff that there is in the world, okay. and how we relate to it. Right. Now, it combines certain traditional metaphysical concerns about what there is in the world, uh, but at the same time, it takes stock of Kant's criticism of traditional metaphysics. And this is very tricky because You're Kant talking about the phenomenology of spirit now, yeah? I'm talking about the logic. The logic, OK. Uh, this is another of Haeckel's books. Uh, and the key... One way of looking at the logic and one way of looking at Hegel's metaphysics uh, is as a conjunction of two ideas. Right. One is that the very, very basic concepts which... Uh, describe reality have to have an uh, infinite generality. Just to give an example, mm-hmm. let's say the, exa- the, the, the concept of cause. Right. You could say, why can't I pick it up from looking at the world? Let's say I throw uh, this book on the floor. Why can't I understand cause like that? Well, because this is just one causal episode. If I want to use it for other causal mm-hmm. episodes, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, uh, so this is the thought of just infinite generality. And if you have infinite generality, you don't want, at the same time, these ideas to be just private hunches, fantasies of a so, thinker. Sorry, I, I, you lost me a yeah, bit. Okay. What is the inf- infinite Generality it's about that you can apply it to other things. You have you to can be able apply to apply the concept, the basic. So the, the I, he's, you're saying that he's saying that you, you can't really say anything because anything you say is applicable to everything. No, only these very basic concepts have to have this generality, like cause. Things like cause, like quantity, quality. They are very basic concepts. But at the same time, these concepts are not sort of dreamt up in the thought of the thinker. They have to be organized in a certain way. Right. And the way in which they are organized and the way in which they uh, have certain implications and the way they relate to other concepts creates this organization. So, And that stops them from being just arbitrary things that I think up in my bedroom or Hegel. So you're saying that there, there's a sort of necessary... To Hegel, there's a, ne- there's a necessary yes. way t- in Quite, which, in yeah. which uh, thoughts must be organized, Excellent. right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and this is what captures the f- the, uh, his basic claim that these are thoughts that shape reality. Okay. Yeah? So Because they're necessary. Because they're necessary and they're organized in, in, in this way. So if you have... You, you can start to get to this idea if you have, on the one hand, the thought of this infinite generality. So these are very general things. Okay. And if you have the thought of this organization, that they have to be organized in order to mean at all, to do the job we so ask can I, them. So can I ask a question yeah. then? If that's the case, then is this absolute knowledge to which human society is supposedly developing through its developing concepts of freedom is that absolute knowledge this knowledge of the way things should be organized in a purely logical way is this where he's trying to get to to say you know we're evolving to a state where we know uh the state of the mind of god before the creation of the world in 
all you know in all its major parts. My quick answer is no. So Peter, please. Oh, I would think I would think yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think it isn't a question of the way things should be organised. It's a question of the way things are organised. Right. Um, everything's necessary to hang on. Everything's necessary, and uh, reality and thought are of the same nature. So that the organisation of thought and the organisation of reality both have the same form. Okay, that's an interesting thing about Hegel. He was what they call an idealist, which means that he, you know, depending on how you interpret Hegel, it means that basically that mind is the ultimate reality, I suppose, is, is the most general way of putting it. Um, but what does that mean to you two people to, 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 to say that, you know, the ultimate reality is what he calls Geist in German, which can be translated mind, idea, spirit, and all those sort of connotations. What, what does it mean to you? Well, well as an idealist, perhaps for one should make absolutely clear that he is not an idealist in the manner of Berkeley, for okay, instance. Okay, which is that everything is in the mind in the way that everything yes. you perceive is in uh, the mind. He is right? uh, very much a realist about all sorts of things. He's a realist about ordinary objects. He's a realist about ideas. He is uh, too much of a realist, if you will. So where does this, <laughs> where does this uh, Geist thing come in, then? Well, the Geist is one of those tricky concepts, and... One uh, very powerful interpretation, though of course contested like all interpretations, is that Geist is the way in which we give meaning and we use concepts and we interact with the world. And this way of giving meaning and using concepts uh, is not subjective in a privative way. Uh, because there is nothing else except for that. So Geist or spirit, according to this interpretation, is just us folk, basically. It's um, people all together. It's like culture, then, people, perhaps. People, plus their cultures, plus their uh, institutions, their ideas, etc. But there are, of course, other interpretations. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to ask subjective. Peter what his interpretation yeah, is I now. think Peter would be on and the other side. Uh, well, not necessarily. I think Geist is, is always used in relation to human uh, thought and human society. In Hegel's work. In yeah. Hegel, yeah. In, um, what does he mean by it, according to you? What, what does he mean by Geist? Um, yes. <coughs> the, I think that it's important that it's not just the individual human being. It is um, a thought as, is, as it's embodied in society. And okay. then it becomes embodied in the various creations of society, uh, including such things as art and religion. Okay. Um, so he has, uh, as well as the development of social forms, he also has a, uh, the development of religions, which go through a series of different stages, finally arriving at the absolute religion, which is Christianity. Okay, uh, and this is this, again part of his development of history, isn't very it? Very much so, it, yeah. How does it tie in with his freedom stuff? Um, well, Christianity is the uh, the ultimate religion for him, and uh, the three, uh, uh, and particularly in its form as, as a, a religion of Trinitarianism, mm -hmm. um, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, the Holy Ghost could mean the Holy Spirit, meaning Geist. Okay. <coughs> and um, uh, his interpretation of uh, the life of Christ is that with the death of Christ, uh, the Spirit of Christ is is revived, is resurrected within his followers. Okay. Uh, so it's not a resurrection of the body, it's a resurrection of the spirit of Christ within his followers, and this spirit is the Holy Spirit, which is Geist, uh, embodied in the world of human beings. Right, because that's how he thinks of this spirit, as a sort of, uh, it's like a zeitgeist or a cultural so it's sort of the spirit of the culture isn't it? Yes, although this can also lead to a misunderstanding and a caricature mm -hmm. of uh, uh, 
in especially for instance in aesthetics and in history of art since you mentioned uh, other areas or in, in which he wrote um he his thought had been taken up by people who thought that every uh, shape or every period in art history is um shapes not just the high art and the artworks we see but even even the hem of a skirt even the shape of a shoe uh, and that creates a, a rather weird notion of Geist as this as I said earlier supra-individual entity that somehow Controls. shapes everything and manifests yeah. everything and, 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 and this requires quite a, quite a lot of metaphysical investment uh, to, 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 to pick up so I would rather look at his view of art as, um, well, again, it's a very developmental view of art, and he considers our era to be a very long era in which, um, effectively, we cannot anymore uh, either have uh, the art of the past, like the classical art, nor can art have the place it had in the past? And the, 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 the point of this is that we do not depict heroes, kings, and gods. No. We just depict each other we de- or express express our sorrows and hopes, etc. And that, that's sort and of that representing the high degree of freedom that we've but achieved. But also diminishes yeah? art at the same time because it is just us. You know, there is nothing. So if you seek okay. something higher, you have to go to philosophy, for example. Right. Art is replaced by philosophy. So it's to replaced Hegel. by... To Hegel. Uh, and so it's, uh, we're dealing in the, the world of the concepts. And many people have connected this with the development of conceptual art in modern times. Yeah, from Hegel. So not only yeah. is he a father of the left and the right wing in in <laughs> politics, he's also the father of modern art. Of modern art. Okay. Yes. He's uh, <laughs> been a busy boy, hasn't he? <laughs> um, okay, uh, just uh, is this Geist, is it God in the way that we would understand the word God or is it something else? I would say no, although there are very fascinating mystical interpretations of Hegel, and he was interested in mysticism himself. So uh, this is why he's just large enough to encompass multitudes, I think. Okay, look, we're running out of time here now. Um, So I just want to briefly say how much of his theories are we thinking, what of his thinking is most relevant for us these days, do you think? I think the possibility of thinking in this uh, in this process, in terms of his process, the, the process of the dialectic, thinking in terms of these various stages um, through which things go. So the the. Uh, you're not putting yourself on, the, on one side or another. You're thinking about these three stages that everything can be divided into. Uh, and what this does is open up the possibilities of new ways of thinking. And okay. So it can be applied to almost any area of thought that you want to consider. Okay, Katrina, what do you, what do you think is most relevant for now? I, I won't venture to speak in general, but I would say what interests me is his conception of action uh-huh. and the way in which he tries to get us away from thinking about a little homunculus, thinking inside ourselves. And this is very interesting, very public, shared conception of action is quite fascinating. Uh, okay, and so we're, we're, all, we're actors only within a 
community. Yes, I suppose so, yes. Okay, uh, we're coming near to the end of the show now, so I'm Grant Bartley. I, I want you to buy my book, so The Meta Revolution <laughs> and uh, Love, Solitude and Destruction, which you can get online. Okay, guys, do you want to tell the people what your websites are for the musicians, Rosanella? Yes, uh, it's, uh, one is Alan Stewart Music, com. And uh, and mine is rosanellamusic.com. Okay. And, and I'll be recording, I meant you say, at yeah. Tiger Sonic in uh, Felix of Tiger Sonic, middle of February. So uh, watch that space. Okay, great. There'll be something available there soon. Okay, and there's also a web forum at philosophynow.org if you want to start a theme on anything that you've heard today and you can hear the podcast there as well. Okay, bye. <laughs>